0: It is truly my joy and privilege to join you this morning in this time of worship and now opening of God's Word together with you. As been noted already, this is a, a weekend that we as a nation have set aside to particularly reflect upon certain themes from the writings and teachings of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Themes such as racial equality civil rights for all, justice, nonviolence, so forth. But often, one theme that was very dear to his heart that gets often left out in our collective recollect- uh, reflections is this theme, reconciliation. In fact, in one of his late writings, he, uh, he, I would like to read you a quote of where he expresses his heart for reconciliation in this one sentence. There is another element that must be present in our struggle that then makes our resistance and nonviolence truly meaningful. That element is reconciliation. Our ultimate end must be the creation of the beloved community. This morning, I would like to invite you to reflect with me by looking at a very short passage in the Psalm 133 to see this biblical imagery or image of what reconciled, beloved community looks like. So if you have your Bible, please open with me to Psalm 133. Psalm 133, a song of ascent of David. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Join me in prayer this morning, our gracious God in heaven. Thank you for the truth of your living Word. And now, as your children, as we gather around and open your holy Word, we pray, O oh God, your holiest Spirit be our teacher, and work in minds of our hearts, that we might be, not only be informed by your Word, but be transformed by it. In Christ's precious name, we pray. Amen. We're told this psalm is a song of ascents. And as you know, song of ascents are those particular psalms going from Psalm 120 to 134 that God's people often sang as they were going up in a pilgrimage toward Jerusalem to the temple of God, which was literally sitting up on the top of a tall mountain. Therefore, song of ascents. Particularly, there were several times a year that God would mandate his people to worship God at this temple to come together all different tribes going up the hill in worshiping him. Now imagine with me you are in that crowd going up that hill surrounded by thousands of God's people in order to worship God. And as you're going up that hill, you're singing this song. And as you look around, there are some who you would recognize. They are familiar to you because they're part of your tribe or they're from your village. But the vast of the rest, they're strangers to you. You'll find old and new, men, women, people from different tribes, different regions in the nation, are strangers, and yet as you go up that hill singing this psalm, there is this sense of oneness because you are sharing this journey, because you are going toward the same destination, because you are worshiping same God, and because you are claimed by this same God. But note, today's psalm says that you are to relate to one another, not Merely as traveling companions, but as brothers, brothers and sisters. That's NIV. Or NRSV's translation says the kindred, this language of family. That's how you are to relate to one another. Now, this theme of God's children belonging to a same family becomes even more explicit in many of the writings. In the New Testament, because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And one of those passages is Ephesians chapter 2. And if you have a Bible, please turn to that passage, Ephesians chapter 2. And in that chapter, Apostle Paul outlines this glory of the gospel of Christ, particularly the meaning of the cross of Jesus. And from verses 1 through 10, Apostle Paul teaches. That because of what Christ has done on the cross, now we are reconciled with our God above. That vertical reconciliation has been achieved and given to us as grace, as gift. That our salvation is not something we earn, but because of what Christ has done on the cross, now this reconciliation is gift that God has given to us. And then starting verse 11, Apostle Paul outlines another aspect of reconciliation that often gets overlooked in our Christian life, and that is a horizontal one. That as we had been reconciled with God above, also because of what Christ has done on a cross, now there is horizontal reconciliation, done and given to us as a gift. And Apostle Paul is bringing this truth out particularly because in the early church there had been a deeply seated sense of animosity between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, those who are coming from non-Jewish background. And Paul is addressing that conflict. And let me just read from verse 14 through 17 and then verse 19. For Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. And now let me go to verse 19. Consequently, therefore, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and, and here's the phrase, also members of his household. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, you're not only reconciled with God above, but now you're reconciled members of the same household, oikos, family. So whether you're Jew or non Jew, if you are a follower of Christ, now you're not merely strangers to one another or even just friends. Consider yourselves brothers and sisters in God's same household because you get to choose who your friend's going to be, but you don't get to choose who's going to be your brother or sister. And Apostle Paul reminds us this reality of the gospel. It's a gift God is giving to you. Now live into that reality of reconciliation. I met my wife, Phyllis, when I was in college. Uh, she, like myself, comes from a Korean-American background. And uh, we dated for a period of time, and now critical time has come for me to now bring this young woman to my family to introduce her to my parents. Because for particularly those of us who come from Asian context, getting that parent's approval is so, so critical. Now, here was a challenge, though. My wife fellas, born and raised in the United States, growing up in Indiana. culturally, she was more of a hoosier than anything else. <laughs> and she did not speak much of Korean language. My parents, on the other hand, very traditional immigrants, uh, did not actually learn much of English language, so she they were not able to communicate fluently in English language. So here was a practical challenge that I faced. How do I get this woman into my family and have her interact with my parents when there is that language and cultural barrier? So I <laughs> prepped Phyllis with some necessary and critical phrases and sentences. She practiced those phrases with me. And then I said, first impression is really important Phyllis. And when you come to my house, the first thing you need to do is to make that deep bow to my parents. Like 45 degrees, down. <laughs> and then I told her, when you're down, count one and two and three before you come back up. <clears throat> we even practiced this a few times. Well, that day came when she came to our home. I went to Washington the National Airport, picked her up brought her to my family, and my family were there eager to meet this young lady, and my parents were there to greet them. Now, as soon as Phyllis came up to them, she, out of excitement, just forgotten everything that we talked about, (laughs) the practices that we have done, and she goes off to my mother and basically hugs her. (laughs) Now, particularly coming from a more reserved culture that I do, you never hug a stranger. And you definitely hug, do not hug, the person who's older than you. Wow, I just looked at that, and I'm thinking, Phyllis, what are you doing? <laughs> well, after that, she moved off to my dad. Now, my dad is a Presbyterian minister. He just saw what happened. <laughs> so when Phyllis moved over, he just extended his arm. <laughs> <clears throat> well, she got to spend a good part of the day with us. She made a valiant effort to use that few Korean phrases that she learned and had a wonderful time. My parents, I think, really also enjoyed getting to know her. At that evening, it was now time for us to say goodbye to Phyllis. And as we were doing so, my mother stepped up to Phyllis and hugged her. My sister just looked at her and muttered, I didn't know she could do that. <laughs> well, It was my mother now using Phyllis's language of love and embracing her. I looked at that and huge sigh of relief. Great, she's now in. <laughs> Being embraced into the family. There's a well-known Croatian-American theologian named Miroslav Volf, who wrote a wonderful book called Exclusion and Embrace. A book late, later became the book of the year by Christianity Today. It is a wonderful theological reflection on how Christians ought to relate to one another, particularly when we come from so different backgrounds. And he uses this imagery of embracing others as a very important part of Christian fellowship. And in that context, he explains this, what he calls practice of embrace, Involving two very critical steps. He says in order to embrace another, particularly those who come from different backgrounds than I, whether it be race, culture, or social economic class, the first thing we must do is to open up our arms. Because you cannot embrace another person if you do this. But then he noted that that gesture of opening your arm signifies two things. One, it is of a humility that I by myself or our people by ourselves, somehow we're lacking. We're not all sufficient and therefore we need you, I need you to be part of my life, to be part of my relationships. It's that sign of humility. But then, secondly, Wolf notes, when we open arms like this as a gesture of embrace, it also signifies a vulnerability. You know, this is a rather vulnerable position, isn't it? You're risking something. You're opening yourself to possible hurts. And then secondly, He says, after you do your first part this, now the second part of embrace is to gently and lovingly bring your arms around that person in a closure. And it's at that point, Wolf points out, that our human nature and our human tendency being what it is, we have temptation to give the other person what he calls oppressive bear hug of assimilation. And basically, that means we signify, yes, I'll have you in my life, but as long as you become just like me. And he says, that is not an embrace. That is an oppressive bear hug. But instead, because you are different than I, you have something to offer to me. And I accept and embrace you in your difference because it is that thing that would enrich my life. Embracing one another into God's family as brothers and sisters, and dwelling together in that reality, or to put it differently, that work of reconciliation already accomplished on the cross, that Jesus became our peace, And now, how do we appropriate that blessing and that gift in our life today? How do we steward that gift of reconciliation? And Miroslav Volf suggests one way to think about that is this continual practice of embracing one another, dwelling together in unity in a beloved community. Well, what are particular blessings then? or benefits or <clears throat> that come out of such a life together. And next two verses outlines two particular blessings that the Psalm 133 points out. So let me go to uh, verse 2 of Psalm 133. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. Now, for modern readers like ourselves, we're a little puzzled about how that verse 2 is a blessing. I mean, it has this imagery of just oil dripping down from head to the toe. I mean, we do live in a world where we pay money to get oil out of our hair. And here is something that is quite opposite. Of course, for Hebrew readers, the reference, they get it right away. It is to Exodus chapter 29 where there is this picture of Aaron and his sons being consecrated to do God's work of being priests. And in that moment of consecration in that passage, there is this imagery of oil being poured down on Aaron and his sons' heads as a way of cleansing them, way of setting them aside for God's holy so that if that is the case, somehow this Psalm 133 is reminding us that as God's children, when we come together and learn to do life together in unity, somehow God would, in that midst, do his work of cleansing, do his work of consecrating, so that that group of beloved children of God can be used for God's holy purpose. In the year of 1993, I was invited to speak at uh, 1993 Urbana Mission Convention. And some of you may be familiar with that gathering. Every three years or so, 20,000 college students come together from United States, Canada mostly, but also from other parts of the world to think about God's world. Mission. In 1993, I was invited to speak at that, and this was soon after 1992 LA riot, and the racial tension in our nation and our college campus was incredibly heightened. And I was at that time a university staff worker serving in a campus ministry in that context. So I brought this message to the Urbana Convention, that one of the things that God is calling us to do is to engage in a ministry of reconciliation among God's people. Now, what I did not know is that that particular Urbana, 1993, unusually large number of Japanese university Christian students were sent by Japanese church to attend that particular Urbana. And they were there. And I was told about 100 or so had come and they heard my message calling for reconciliation, someone who is a Korean descent. Now, this was also a time when the relationship between the nation of Japan and nation of Korea was at its worst. And as many of you know, we do have a history between those two nations. That is not at all positive most recent one being that Korea was colonized by Japan for 45 years, which ended with the end of World War II. But around that time, late 80s and early 90s, there came out an incredible story that remained invisible that became all of a sudden public. And that story was this, that during World War II, Japanese imperial government had recruited and often forcefully about 100,000 or so young high school-age Korean women and created what they called Comfort Brigade. And this 100,000 young Korean women were drafted and sent to various places in Pacific war fronts. And their daily duty was to serve as sex slaves and having anywhere between 25 to 35 partners a day. Some committed suicide. Many survived that ordeal. But because of deep sense of shame of what they had to endure, they never talked about it even after they came back to Korea. They didn't tell their parents, their siblings, their husbands, their children. And then into 1980s, literally many of them at their deathbed, they talked about this. It began to bubble up. And there were various studies formed to verify that. And surely enough, that had happened. And can you imagine the sense of a deep anger, animosity, pain that was lodged against Japanese government? And Japanese government, instead of apologizing, took the other tact, not only saying that this did never happen, but rewriting their own history and teaching the younger generation about what happened in World War II, and that further angered nation of Korea. And it was in that context that these 100 Japanese Christian students had come to Urbana, and as they heard this message about reconciliation, they felt deeply that God was calling them to somehow work through this sin of their nation while they're there. Now, after Urbana was done, 500 or so international delegates got together and had their own debriefing time together. I was not there, but some of my university colleagues later told me about this amazing story. Basically, on that final day of international delegates gathering, a spokesperson from Japanese group asked the moderator of the plenary session if they could have 10 minutes of the time. It was granted to them, and when that time came, this uh, Japanese woman student went up, had a prepared statement. But as she was about to read the prepared statement, she gave a signal, and all the Japanese delegates got up from their seats and went to the four walls of that room and lined up. And then they asked particularly the Korean delegates to stand up, and there were about 25, 30 of them. And they stood up, not knowing what this is about. And then this woman tearfully read the prepared statement about that Comfort Brigade incident and about other atrocities that Japan had committed against Korea and asked for God's forgiveness and then asked for the forgiveness of Korean brothers and sisters who were there. And then when the statement was finished, all these Japanese delegates basically dropped to the floor and gave their deep bow with their head to the floor, which is their cultural expression of deep penitence and contriteness. Again, I was not there, but I was told that everybody who was there, 500 or so, there are no dry eyes in that room. Now, providentially, right after that morning session, the Korean delegates were supposed to go up and lead the worship time. So they went up, and one of the praise leaders from Korea, before the praise time began, shared with not only the whole crowd, but particularly with the Japanese delegates, asking for this time their forgiveness because Korean people and the nation, and including Korean Christians, had harbored all these years deep, deep hatred against Japan and how that is not honoring to God and asked for the forgiveness from Japanese delegates. Well, that night, the Korean and Japanese delegates agreed to come together for an hour for time of a fellowship. But that hour, scheduled time, basically extended into all night time of praise, time of prayer, and time of blessing each other. And out of that evening or an all-night gathering, they formed a new mission group called Japan-Korea Christian Fellowship. And through that fellowship, now hundreds of Korean Christian students would go to Japan during the summer month. And pair up with the Japanese Christian students. And doing evangelism on Japanese university campuses. And when Japanese ask, now why is it these Koreans are doing here? They hate us. That they are able to speak in one voice. That because of what Christ has done on the cross, the power of reconciliation enables us. To do the work of God together now, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Brothers and sisters, in our society today, as we try to continually wrestle with these issues of race relations, it seems like the highest bar we can set is tolerance. Can we get along with each other? I mean, that's about the best aim we can make. But what God has for us is something that is far deeper than tolerance, something that is far deeper than even inclusion. It is this reconciled, beloved community that is open to the work of God's Spirit for continual practice of repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation that the world cannot even imagine that is the gift that god calls us to step into because when that happens and then here comes the blessing on a second blessing on verse 3 it is as if the dew of hermon were falling on mount zion for there the lord bestows his blessing even life forever more. Once again, this one needs a bit of a translation or unpacking because for us, we're not quite sure what this imagery is about. But basically, if you are a reader living in Palestine at that time, most likely you will be living in that part of the landscape that is arid and dry most of the year, not a whole lot of rainfall coming down. And therefore, there isn't a whole lot of vegetation around you. You're surrounded by brown desert-like space. Except when you turn toward north, toward the border with Syria, there stands this tall mountain, Mount Hermon. And it's so tall and its elevation so high, especially on a higher part of the mountain, there's a generous dew falling each day. Which meant that Mount Hermon had this green vegetation all year around. So you may be living and working in a part of Palestine that is brown and that is lacking any sign of vegetation, but you look at that north toward Mount Hermon, and there is a sign of life and life abundant. Well, this psalm is saying, as God's people, when we learn to relate to one another as brothers and sisters and live in unity in that beloved community, that world will take notice of it. In fact, isn't that what Jesus prayed for? John 17, on a night he was to be arrested. First part of the John 17, he prayed for his disciples. And then, second part, he began to pray for those who will come to know him through the ministry of the apostles. And that's basically the church. That's you and me. On the night of his arrest, what was in his heart? You know, when someone leaves behind last word or last prayer, we pay attention to that because whatever was at the center of one's heart comes out as a last remark. Now, Jesus could have prayed for dozens of things, I'm sure. But if you go to that passage... John 17, he basically prayed for one thing for his church, and that is that his followers will be one as he and his Father are one, so that the world may know that Christ was sent by God above. Somehow, our ability to dwell together as a beloved community relating to one another as a brothers and sisters would cause the world outside to see there is something in that community, a life and life abundant that we do not have out here. Could it be that Christ is indeed the living God sent by, Father above? They say by year 2040, our nation will no longer have a numerical majority race group. Our nation's demography is changing quickly, and at the same time, unfortunately, it seems with that diversifying of our nation also comes deepening of the boundaries among people groups what Martin Luther King Jr. fought for, the civil rights and so forth. The legal restrictions are removed, and we thought somehow that would bring the people groups closer together. But many sociologists would argue that racial tension today is just as palpable as it was 50 years ago, if not becoming even more polarized. That's the world. And if Jesus' prayer in John 17 is true throughout church history, the time that is going to be even more true, I believe, is today's polarized, fragmented society in which we live. If God's church manifests what this Psalm 133 is presenting, that beloved community of reconciled children of God, wouldn't the world take note of this? Brothers and sisters, when and people from very different cultural, ethnic, racial, social, economic backgrounds come into our midst, come to this congregation, come to my church, sometimes what I hear is the rhetorics of hospitality. Let's welcome them in. Let's be more hospitable to them. Now, to be sure, hospitality is a biblical mandate. We are to be hospitable people. We are to practice hospitality. However, when it comes to doing the life together, like Psalm 133, sometimes I think the overextended use of the language of hospitality can undermine what this passage is talking about. Because when we are merely welcoming and being hospitable to others, then we are creating this separation or division between the host and the guest. Instead of unity, now we have a binary thing. Also, yes, we do... Our hospitality to our guests with a sense of respect, wanting to serve them, but often, too often, guest host relationships do not go beyond politeness. We don't do life together. And then finally, the guests I mean, sort of definition of guest is that there is a sense of temporariness attached to it, right? Guests are never permanent. I mean, there is an Italian proverb that goes something like, guests are like a fish. After three days, he stinks. (laughs) Psalm 133 says, when we have individuals from different backgrounds coming into our midst, as followers of Christ, we are to relate to one another, not as guests, hosts, but as brothers and sisters in Christ to be embraced. Grateful and thankful to the Lord for the work that God is doing in your midst in this congregation. And as people of this 10-mile radius, which is a very diverse group, are being drawn to this church because of what God is doing here, would you embrace them? Not just welcome them, but embrace them as your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ because of what Christ has done on the cross. And as you do life together, and as God's Spirit points to certain areas, that calls for certain forgiveness, repentance, and reconciliation, would you be open to that work of spirit? So that the world outside that can only hope for tolerance can see the depth and the richness of the power of the gospel that has created this reconciled and reconciling beloved community something that they cannot even dream about when they see it here, that they will come to a recognition that Christ is indeed the Savior of this world that desperately needs. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for reminding us through your word this morning this tremendous gift that you have given to us because of the sacrificial death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, it is our prayer that this congregation, the members individually and collectively, that we would once again appropriate this wonderful gift of the gospel and learn to live into that reality humbly, thankfully, but with deep commitment. Lord, it is my prayer that as this church continually go on this journey of becoming a reconciling and reconciled community, we pray for the work of your spirit, uh, strengthening and deepening of that journey, that your name will be continually be glorified and lifted up because of this beloved community, Christ Church at Lake Forest. And we pray all this in the most precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.